All right, let's uh, continue our discussion of William Wordsworth. I'd like to start with the poem, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud. And I want to be thinking about how this enacts uh, very similar themes and uh, a very similar kind of psychology that we saw in Tintern Abbey and some of uh, Wordsworth's other poems. Uh, I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or vale and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. All right, now notice that just this first stanza, we set up a very interesting contrast. Uh, The speaker is wandering, that is moving around, uh, but aimlessly, like a cloud uh, that floats on high. So he's detached from the earth. Uh, He's lonely. There's nobody with him. He's just kind of a, a floating there. And then something happens, as usually does in a poem. Um, He sees a crowd. Now, automatically, the word crowd contrasts with the word lonely. He goes from being lonely to seeing this crowd, a host um, of golden daffodils. And they are very rooted in the earth, beside the lake, beneath the trees, uh, so they're not wandering in the sky. They're they're very much a part of the of the land of the earth, and their action is not one. It's not past a past tense wandered. It's a fluttering and dancing. So they're very active, uh, and that that verb dancing will come uh, come up again as we'll see. So then he goes on, continues to describe them in the second stanza, continuous. As the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. So, the next metaphor he uses to describe them is like the stars in the sky. Uh, the the and he, again the vast numbers of them not the lonely single person like the speaker is, but like the stars uh, that twinkle in the Milky Way, uh, a never-ending line, and again very much attached to land along the margin of a bay, uh, they're, they're rooted and grounded in the earth, uh, ten thousand of them, and again what are they doing? They're very active, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. Here that dance comes in again. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. So the the waves are dancing too, but not as as gleefully as the daffodils are. Uh, a poet could not be but gay in such a jocund company. Um, so now we see that the the sprightly danciness of the daffodils is affecting the poet. He he doesn't just see this, he internalizes it. Um, It's unfortunate that in our our contemporary language, uh, uh, a poet could not be but gay. That has nothing to do with homosexuality for Wordsworth. Uh, It just meant happy. Um, That's what uh, linguists call a false friend, uh, a word that you think you know what it means, but actually had a different meaning back in, in, in an earlier time. 
Uh, jocund is another word for jolly or happy or gay. Uh, I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. All right, so he has, there's an immediate effect that he was wandering lonely. Somehow uh, he becomes, uh, he has the identity of a poet now. He couldn't help but be happy. Why? Because he's in the company of these happy jocund flowers. But there's yet another wrinkle to it, the wealth that has been brought. And then we get the final stanza. For oft, when on my couch I lie in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon the inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. So this is very much the, what happened in Tintern Abbey, right? He has this immediate visceral experience of nature, and it has an immediate impact on him. It changes him. But the most important thing is that he can relect it. Remember the, the phrase he used in the, the, the prelude to um, uh, lyrical ballads, emotion recollected in tranquility. So that's exactly what's happening here. He's in the future, after, long after he's seen those daffodils, he's, again, he's lying on his couch. He's very stationary. He's not active and moving. In vacant or in pensive mood. So vacant just means blank. No mood at all. Pensive means thoughtful, worried. Uh, so whether just kind of there's nothing going on, he's bored, or he's really pensive and worried, then they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. So now his solitude is not lonely, it's blissful, the same way that the, the, the flowers were jocund or gay. So they've transformed his his loneliness, uh, his solitude, into something more of a celebration. Because then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils, and then we get dance again. Uh, it, it comes that comes in repeatedly, and of course, here I think the idea of dance is uh, it, it's something that you you do with other people, uh, dancing is a, a communal thing. You dance with somebody or with other people. So he gets to dance with the daffodils by recalling them in his mind. Uh, and this, is, again, is exactly the same thing that happened in uh, Tintern Abbey, where he got to uh, see the, the beauty of the landscape, but then even more importantly, to remember the beauty of the landscape and let it inspire him in later times. Uh, so we see that that kind of psychological journey uh, happens repeatedly for Wordsworth in his poems. And we see that same kind of inspiration from nature in the next poem, My Heart Leaps Up. My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. So was it when my life began? So is it now I am a man? So be it when I shall grow old or let me die. The child is father of the man, and I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. All right. Now here, again, we get the inspiration of nature, but the focus here is more on a kind of a continuity, right? So 
he he has that everybody you know has that feeling oh what a beautiful rainbow right my heart leaps up um he says that happened when his life began when he was a child it's happening now and he hopes it'll still happen when he's old he wouldn't want to live uh, if, if that wasn't happening to him and then we get that very resonant line the child is father of the man that's a beautiful paradox right you, you ha, child is not a ch- father he's a child oh but the child is the father of the man who the man is depends on who the child was the child that you were gives birth to the man that you become and that's that continuity that's why he saw he loved the rainbow when he was a child he loves it now that he's a man the child was the father to the man and his his things about his days bound each to each by natural piety now now piety means religious devotion but this is not the regular kind of piety this is natural piety this is piety that has its its roots in the the love and the communion with nature uh now those those themes as it kind of it's a very short quick little poem but those themes are developed quite a lot in what uh, people call the the immortality ode it's technically the uh, ode uh, intimations of immortality uh, so let's look at that and there's a, a letter that he wrote here uh, kind of describing his inspiration for the poem and a couple of things I want to note about that he says in this letter that nothing was more difficult for me in childhood than to admit the notion of death as a state applicable to my own being. So he's saying, I, I can't imagine, uh, the, I couldn't imagine dying as a child. Death was just not something I had any conception of. And he says that it came, um, he says, but it was not so much from feelings of animal vivacity in my that my difficulty came as from a sense of the indomitableness of the spirit within me. So it's a, a di- an idea that his, his spirit just couldn't die. I mean, how could it? How could it? It was it, it was indomitable. It was unconquerable. And he says, I was often unable to think of external things as having external existence. And I communed with all that I saw as something not apart from, but inherent in my own immaterial nature. So that's an interesting thing. The idea that there's, he says, I, I couldn't think of the external world as something external to me. It was a part of me. It was a part of this, this indomitable spirit that was in, within me. Now that's kind of what he was talking about in in the uh, in the earlier poems in Tender Abbey. That was the kind of feeling, that communion with nature that he had, that he then recalls uh, in later life. Uh, but here it's specifically linked to the idea of death. Uh, he, his spirit was one with nature, so how could it ever go away? And he says that this, this uh, feeling, uh, and he will expand on this in the, in the ode, uh, gave him the idea that he had had some kind of prior existence, that he was, I mean, if he was indomitable, if he was never going to die, perhaps he had never really started to exist either. Um, and he says, having in the poem uh, regarded it that this this feeling as presumptive evidence of a prior state of existence that he was alive before he was born in essence 
I think it right to protest against a conclusion which has given pain to some good and pious persons that I meant to inculcate such a belief. So he's saying, uh, look, I, I, you know, doctrinaire Christians didn't like this idea. That's not how it goes. And I just say, oh, I, you know, I'm not preaching this. I'm not trying to convert anybody. He says, it is far too shadowy a notion to be recommended to faith as more than an element in our instincts of immortality. So he's backing off from making any theological claims about this. Again, it's it's too shadowy for the notion of faith, but it obviously has a very strong spiritual dimension for him. And he begins this, this ode, the intimations of immortality from recollections of early childhood, with a quote from that poem that we just looked at. The child is father of the man, and I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. So that's the central idea, the, the, his days linked together. So he starts this poem, and I should say, this is written in very irregular stanzas, and it's also not as uh, uh, formally smooth as some of Wordsworth's other poems. I think that's deliberate. These are kind of jotted down ideas. These are fragments and snatches. This isn't the kind of, of, of you know, Tintern Abbey or uh, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud have very nice structural progression in them. This is kind of almost like he's trying to get ideas down on paper. Uh, so the first stanza, there was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight did me, to me did seem appareled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of yore, turn wheresoe'er I may, by night or day, the things which I have seen, I now can see no more. So this is an idea that he's he's lost something, that there was a, a freshness to his uh, perceptions of nature as a child that he doesn't have anymore. It is not now as it has been of yore. He's lost something. Um, and he, he talks about those things. He talks about the, the rainbow, the rose, the moon. Those are all, you know, the, the waters on a starry night. Uh, he said the, the sunshine is a glorious birth. But yet I know where I go that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. So he still sees the, the nature and sees that it's beautiful, but there's something missing. There's something that's not quite there, not quite the same as it has been. Um, and he can see the, the joy in nature, the songbirds, the, the lambs uh, bounding. He says, to me alone there came a thought of grief. A timely utterance gave that thought relief. And I, am, and I again, am strong. Uh, that's interesting for a poet. He has these feelings of grief, and he kind of works them out by a, a timely utterance, uh, presumably some, some, a poem that he wrote. Um, so now you know, I, I hear the echoes through the mountains, you know, the winds, and all the earth is gay, land and sea. They give themselves up to jollity. Uh, and, and says, Thou child of joy, shout round me. Let me hear thy shouts, thou happy shepherd boy. So now he's, he's trying to get back to that, uh, that uh, state, and he's looking at the, the children, the happy shepherd boy, who will uh, remind him of that time when he uh, saw the earth clad in celestial light. Now you notice that this is, in some ways, quite similar to Blake's idea of innocence and experience. 
Wordsworth, in his older, more experienced uh, mindset, is trying to recapture some of that innocence of youth. And in stanza four, he talks about the, these blessed creatures, the heavens laugh with you in your jubilee, my heart is at your festival. Uh, so he, he can see that, that joy, uh, yet, you know, line 51, but there's a tree of many, one, a single field which I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat. Whither is fled the visionary gleam? Where is it now, the glory and the dream? So it, it's not that he can't be happy for nature. He doesn't see these joyous and wonderful things. Uh, but still, there's something missing. There's something that is not as strong, as powerful an experience as it was when he was a child. So he has stanza five. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. So here's his idea that when when you're born, it's like, going to sleep. There's a forgetting. Uh, the, the soul that is born into the world with you has had its setting elsewhere. and it comes. But here it's coming back, and it doesn't completely forget where it was. It's not completely naked. And that this uh, very resonant phrase, trailing clouds of glory do we come. So we're coming from heaven, and it's like the, the clouds kind of, maybe we've fallen from heaven, but the clouds kind of come with us. We have some wisps, some uh, clouds of glory that come down with us from God. And so heaven lies about us in our infancy. So when you're, you're an infant, you're the closest to that. Uh, your, your soul has come from heaven, and you're, you're the closest to those, uh, those clouds of glory. Shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. You know, the prison house is the physical material world, right? And so those are closing on you. But he beholds the light, he, the boy, the growing boy, and whence it flows, he sees it in his joy. So even though he's he's become a physical being now, there's, he still has that connection to that that spiritual uh, uh, realm that he came from. The youth, so now he's grown up, not just a, an infant, then a boy, now a youth, who daily farther from the east must travel, still is nature's priest, and by the vision splendid is on his way attended. So, again, farther from the east, this is an idea of, kind of like the, our life's star has had its setting. So it's moving across the sky. It's getting farther to the, uh, uh, you know, farther from the east, uh, from where the, the sunrise was. But still, it, it has that vision splendid. So that at length, the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day. 
So it doesn't it doesn't last. You you have this, uh, it, and it gets weaker and weaker as you get older and as you become a man. You've kind of lost that. And he says in the next stanza, line eighty one, the homely nurse. He's talking about nature. Doth all she can to make her foster child, her inmate, man, forget the glories he hath known, and that imperial place whence he came. All right, so if man is a foster child, not kind of a natural child, they're, they're kind of adopted, and the inmate, we're in, again, the prison closing around us, and nature makes us forget those early glories that we had. And in the next two stanzas, he talks about the, uh, the behold the child among his newborn blisses, a six years darling of a pygmy size. So here's the the six year old uh, child, and all of these these blissful things, all the things that he sees, all the things he experiences, um, and then he, he gets in uh, stanza eight. He says, "Thou." whose exterior semblance doth belie thy soul's immensity. You have this huge soul in this tiny little kid body. Thou best philosopher, who yet dost keep thy heritage. Thou I among the blind, that deaf and silent readst the eternal deep, haunted forever by the eternal mind. Mighty prophet, seer blessed. So this is a, 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 a praise of the, the child. And again, all the things he compares him to, he's a philosopher. He's a, 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 an eye among the blind. Uh, he's a prophet, a seer. That's all the kind of the power that the child has because he's closer to those that immortal spiritual realm that slowly gets forgotten as you grow up. And this kind of romantic view of childhood became uh, very powerful. I think there's still very uh, uh, strong uh, hints of that in our, uh, even to the present day. Uh, but this was not the way that uh, uh, earlier times had thought about childhood. And again, he emphasizes that this is a temporary state. Line 126, full soon thy soul shall have her earthly freight and custom lie upon thee with a weight, heavy as frost, and deep almost as life. Uh, you get that beautiful image. It's, it's like a, a frost freezing the, 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 the life that you, you had. And deep, it's how, how deep is this frost? It's no, as deep almost as life. Life deep. Again, there's a, that little sliver of your life early on that it, it's not covered uh, by this, but it's almost as deep as life. And he says in stanza 9, line 133, The thought of our past years in me doth breed perpetual benediction. So there's a blessing, a benediction, and it's, it's forever in recalling those years. So even though it's this brief time that you have in childhood, it, it is also at the same time a benediction, a blessing for the rest of your life. And he says it's it's not maybe the benediction you would think. It's not indeed for that which is most worthy to be blessed, delight and liberty, the simple creed of childhood, whether busy or at rest, with new-fledged hope still fluttering in his breast. Not for these I raise the song of thanks and praise. 
So he's saying, I- I'm not talking about, you know, kind of the delight and liberty of childhood and all you know, that. That's all great, but that's not what makes it a perpetual benediction. That's the part that goes away. He says, but for those obstinate questionings of sense and outward things, fallings from us, vanishings, blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized, high instincts before which our mortal nature did tremble like a guilty thing surprised. So it's the fact that those childhood experiences make you question your senses, question outward things. Uh, Again, the misgivings you have. There's a world not realized. You don't quite know everything that's going on. Uh, That's what makes it so powerful. Um, the, The high instincts before which our mortal nature did tremble like a guilty thing, surprised. But for those first affections, those shadowy recollections, which, be they what they may, are yet the fountain light of all our day. So even if we just have a shadowy, vague recollection of that, those clouds of glory we were trailing, that's the fountain light of all our day. That's where all of the light of our life comes from. Says they are yet a master light of all our seeing. Uphold us, cherish, and have power to make our noisy years seem moments in the being of the eternal silence. So that, that connection with childhood can make, you know, when things get noisy and, and, and hectic, and uh, you can still remember back to that eternal silence. Truths that wake to perish never, which neither listlessness nor mad endeavor nor man nor boy nor all that is at enmity with joy can utterly abolish or destroy. So here, there's something indomitable about that. Even though we don't have a direct connection to it, we can just, remembering it again, the emotion recollected in tranquility uh, gives us a link to that, uh, that earlier blessed state. Hence, in a season of calm weather, though inland far we be, our souls have sight of that immortal sea which brought us hither. So it's like we're we're landlocked. We're, you know, far inland, but we came from the sea, from that eternity, and our souls can still kind of remember. Even if we can't see it now, we have these kind of shadowy remembrances of it. Um, They can, in a moment, travel thither and see the children sport upon the shore and hear the mighty waters rolling evermore. So again, there's this uh, idea that imagination can recollect the things that you have seen before and bring them back to you. We saw that in Tinder Abbey. We saw that in I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud. It's a, it's a key theme with Wordsworth. And he goes on in the next stanza, line 175, What though the radiance which was once so bright be now forever taken from my sight, though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, of glory in the flower, we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind. He says, okay, yes, we've, we've lost that, but we, and we can't reclaim it. Uh, that, again, that splendor in the gla- grass, the glory of the flower, we don't have that the way we did as children, but we, just the remnants of it give us strength. In the primal sympathy, which having been, must ever be. Now, the primal sympathy, that's that oneness with nature. 
uh, in the soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering, in the faith that looks through death in years that bring the philosophic mind. So what we have as, as, as experienced adults uh, is, again, this philosophic mind, uh, a, an understanding of human suffering, uh, a sympathy, a primal sympathy uh, that we didn't have as children. It's in some ways a more elevated, a more refined uh, kind of experience that we're having. Again, you can see there are parallels with William Blake. And he ends the poem on that note as well. It said, the clouds that gather round the setting sun. That's an image that he's had, you know, kind of the trailing clouds of glory, uh, the, the, the journey from the east as the, the light dims going away from childhood. The clouds that gather round the setting sun do take a sober coloring from an eye that hath kept watch or man's mortality. So we have, it's not the kind of pure joy, it's more sober. And why? Because we're aware of death now. We, have, we know that man is mortal. And that gives a, a different color to our experience. Another race hath been, and other palms are one. Thanks to the human heart by which we live, thanks to its tenderness, its joys and fears, to me, the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. So even the, the smallest, little, most insignificant flower can give him this experience, that, again, too deep for tears, so moving you can't even cry about it. Uh, so the experience that you have as a, a, as a grown-up poet here is, in some sense, deeper and richer, perhaps in some ways sadder, uh, than that early experience, but it's informed by it. The, again, the clouds have a sober coloring uh, that they've gained, uh, but the light originally comes from those those intimations of immortality that you have as a child. So this is uh, very similar to the uh, the ideas that he had in, in some of his earlier poems, but it's 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 more kind of philosophical and mystical. Uh, this is an idea that he's recalling not just uh, experience that he had when he was younger, but an experience that he had before he was even born. Um, there, there, and recalling that, or even little flashes of that, uh, give him the, the kind of inspiration that recalling uh, Tintern Abbey or the Daffodils would. Uh, but it, again, this is a more kind of almost mystical communion with nature that he talks about. All right, I'd like to turn now to some sections from The Prelude. This was a poem that uh, Wordsworth worked on all of his life. It wasn't published during his lifetime. It was published after he died by his widow. And there are several different versions of it. The one that uh, you have in the Norton Anthology is the 1805 version of it. Uh, he never came up with a title for it, uh, but the prelude makes it interesting. It's kind of it's still it's all kind of wind up to the big thing, um, but the subtitle was the growth of a poet's mind, and I think that really captures what it's about. It's kind of a poetic autobiography uh, at, at, on an epic scale, uh, and I'd like to start with uh, the selections from Book Seven. This is from his residence in London. 
Now we've seen that you know uh, Wordsworth, like so many of the Romantic poets, is very deeply inspired by nature. Uh, he was not as inspired by the the uh, frantic city life. Uh, so the, the section we have begins, How often in the overflowing streets have I gone forwards with the crowd and, and said unto myself, The face of every one that passes by me is a mystery. Thus have I looked, nor ceased to look, oppressed by thoughts of what and whither, when and how, until the shapes before my eyes became a second sight procession such as glides over still mountains or appears in dreams, and all the ballast of familiar life, the present and the past, hope, fear, all stays, all laws of acting, thinking, speaking man, went from me, neither knowing me nor known. So this is that the sense of being overwhelmed by a crowd. And it says, the face of everyone that passes by me is a mystery. I don't know anything about, you know, I'm in this in this city. I don't know these people. I, I don't know what's going on with them. And it, it overwhelms him. It, it's, it's almost like a sensory overload for Wordsworth. And then he says, line 610, Amid the moving pageant, it was my chance abruptly to be smitten with the view of a blind beggar who, with upright face, stood propped against a wall, upon his chest wearing a written paper to explain the story of the man and who he was. My mind did at this spectacle turn round as with the might of waters, and it seemed to me that in this label was a type or emblem of the utmost that we know both of ourselves and of the universe, and on the shape of this unmoving man, his fixed face and sightless eyes, I looked as if admonished from another world. So here, all of these people, everything, and the one that arrests him is this blind beggar. They're you know, propped up against the wall, and he has a little note pinned to him so people can read about you know, who he was. And Wordsworth is, is struck by this, that, that that's, really, that's what we all are. We're all this blind beggar. What do we know? All that we know can be summed up on this silly little paper that is written about us. Uh, again, he, it's like he's been admonished from another world. So here in the in the midst of this sensory overload, he sees and latches on to one little detail, and it suddenly gives him a flashing moment of insight. So even in the midst of the, the, the crowd and the, the bustle of the city, he can still have these kind of moments of epiphany uh, where he, he, he gains an insight into things. Um, and, and that happens to him uh, throughout the, the prelude, uh, much less in the cities. And he talks about that. It's not his, as he says, it's not his favorite place to be. He doesn't, every, everything is a mystery to him there. And look at uh, line 645. What say you then to times when half the city shall break out full of one passion, vengeance, rage, or fear, to executions, to a street on fire, mobs, riots, or rejoicings? From those sites take one, an annual festival, the fair holden where martyrs suffered in past time, and named of St. Bartholomew. There see a work that's finished to our hands, that lays, if any spectacle on earth can do, the whole creative powers of man asleep. So, 
talking about being overwhelmed by the city, he says it's bad enough normally, but every now and then, the kind of the the, the crowd comes out full of one passion, whether it's vengeance, rage, or fear, going to executions, seeing a street on fire, there's a riot. Um, he says, well, take one example, the the Saint Bartholomew's Fair. This is an annual holiday, uh, and so it, uh, the whole city turns out and they're they're celebrating. And this is a spectacle that can uh, put the whole creative powers of man asleep. So again, he doesn't like this. It's kind of it, it's it's an assault on his sensitive poetic nature. Uh, it, it's putting the creative faculties to sleep. He doesn't like this. You see, he says on line six sixty, "What a hell for eyes and ears! What anarchy and din, barbarian and infernal!" "'Tis a dream monstrous in color, motion, shape, sight, sound." So this is kind of a hellish landscape. There's too much. It's kind of overwhelming. Uh, this is, a, 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 you know, he can't stand all of, all of this overstimulation. And he goes on and on in the poem, making these, these lists of uh, all of these things that he sees. Uh, it is a kind of an overpowering uh, overall impression that it gives until he gets around line 690. He says, all freaks of nature, all Promethean thoughts of man, his dullish madness and their feats all jumbled up together to make this parliament of monsters. So that's what this is all like, this parliament of monsters, freaks of nature. Um, all of this is like going to the circus and kind of being, it's almost like little kids crying when they see a clown. Uh, it, it's too much. It, it's too weird. It's too monstrous. But there's a, a turning point around line 708. He says, but though the picture weary out the eye by nature an unmanageable sight, it is not wholly so to him who looks in steadiness who hath among least things an undersense of greatest, sees the parts as parts, but with a feeling of the whole. So here he's, he's suggesting that all of this is overwhelming, but if, if you see it, if you can detach yourself, if you can see the overall picture, you don't get kind of lost down in the in the frantic nature of it all and see the, the, the whole uh, the, the the greatness of the whole, uh, there's a calming sense to it. And the last part of this little section says, this did I feel in that vast receptacle, that is London and Bartholomew Fair, the spirit of nature was upon me here. The soul of beauty and enduring life was present as a habit and diffused. Though meager lines and color and the press of self-destroying transitory things, composure, and ennobling harmony. So even in those those meager lines, the, the self-destruction, the transitoriness of all of it, there's still an overall, an ennobling harmony and composure that he can feel, even in, in a, kind of the overwhelming city of London and the Bartholomew Fair, where, where things are, seem like too much for him. He says, even there... He can hear that that uh, that, that deeper harmony of nature uh, when he's really in tune with it. Now, I'd like to end looking at the section from Book Five on the Boy of Winander. 
There was a boy. Ye knew him well, ye cliffs and islands of Winander. Many a time, at evening, when the stars had just begun to move along the edges of the hills, rising or setting, would he stand alone beneath the trees or by the glimmering lake, and there, with fingers interwoven, both hands pressed closely palm to palm, and to his mouth uplifted, he, as through an instrument, blew mimic hootings to the silent owls that they might answer him. So here's this boy. Now, the Winander uh, is an area where Wordsworth grew up. He grew up in the, the Lake Country in northern England, and uh, the, the cliffs and islands around Winander. Uh, and here at night, this boy comes out, and he makes owl noises, mimic hootings. He's mimicking the sounds of the owls because he wants them to answer him. He wants a reply. And they would shout across the watery vale and shout again, responsive to his call, with quivering peals and long halloos and screams and echoes loud, redoubled and redoubled, concourse wild of mirth and jocund din. So here their response. Again, it's, it's this beautiful, mirthful, jocund uh, uh, halloos. And when it chanced that pauses of deep silence mocked his skill, then sometimes in that silence, while he hung, listening, a gentle shock of mild surprise has carried far into his heart the voice of mountain torrents, or the visible scene would enter unawares into his mind with all its solemn imagery, its rocks, its woods, and that uncertain heaven received into the bosom of the steady lake. So here, something happens. Now, most of the time, he hoots like an owl. The owl hoots back to him. Sometimes when he makes his calls, they don't say anything. And those are moments where there's actually a, a deeper experience that happens. Uh, again, this gentle shock of mild surprise. Uh, gentle shock, mild surprise. These are almost kind of oxymorons, right? Um, they... And why? Because he hears, he's communing with nature in a deeper way. It's not just a game where he makes a noise and the, nature makes a noise back at him. He hears the voice of mountain torrents. Well, he can't mimic the mountain torrents. He just has to sit there and experience it and hear it and, uh, you know, n not try to manipulate it. Or the visible scene. He would, he would really register what he was seeing would enter unawares into his mind, and not even aware of what's going on, with all its solemn imagery, uh, and the uncertain heaven received into the bosom of the steady lake. It's a beautiful image. Before, it was an image of sounds echoing back and forth. He would make sounds, the owls would make sounds back. Now it's an image of mirroring. That is, he sees the heaven, and he sees the heaven reflected in the lake. So that's a much more profound communion with nature. He sees the way that nature uh, opens itself up. He sees you can see the heavens in the, their reflection in the lake. So he moves from a, a, a simple uh, communion with nature to a much more complex one. Uh, now, that section that I just read and we went through was published as a separate poem. And, and Wordsworth did that a lot with uh, uh, parts of the prelude. He would publish them as, as individual poems. 
But here in the prelude, the story goes on. The boy was taken from his mates and died in childhood ere he was full ten years old. Fair are the woods and beauteous is the spot, the vale where he was born. The churchyard hangs upon a slope above the village school, and there, all along the bank, when I have passed at evening, I believed that oftentimes, a full half-hour together, I have stood mute, looking at the graves, grave in which he lies. So now we get another kind of echoing or mirroring. We get Wordsworth now uh, is staring at the grave of this child. He has stood mute the same way that the, uh, the the boy would hang his head mute when the owls weren't replying. It says, even now, methinks, I have before my sight that self-same village. Okay, now we're doing what Wordsworth so often does. He's remembering what that was like, and now he's calling that memory back to him. He said, I can picture it right now. I can see it as if it was right here. I see her sit in that village church, the throned lady spoken of erewhile, on her green hill, forgetful of this boy who slumbers at her feet, forgetful, too, of all her silent neighborhood of graves, and listening only to the gladsome sounds that from the rural school ascending play beneath her and about her. So these are the sounds of the living children. It says that nature doesn't you know, think about the boy who's dead or any of those people who's dead. It's only attentive to the sounds of the playing children who are alive. May she long behold a race of young ones like to those with whom I herded. Easily, indeed, we might have fed upon a fatter soil of arts and letters, but be that forgiven. We might have had better education as kids, but, you know, that's not the most important thing. A race of real children, not too wise, too learned, or too good. Now, that's interesting. He wants these children, he doesn't want them to learn too much, be too wise, or even to be too good, but wanton, fresh, and bandied up and down by love and hate, fierce mood, fierce, moody, patient, venturous, modest, shy, mad at their sports like withered leaves in winds. So notice all the, the contradictions here, uh, you know, up and down, love and hate, uh, fierce, moody, and patient, venturous, and shy, um, they, all of these contradictory qualities, uh, mad at their sport like withered leaves in winds. So they're blown around, that, you know, you see, you know, kids playing on a playground, it is almost like, you know, winds scattering, uh, leaves scattering in the winds. Uh, though doing wrong and suffering, uh, and full oft bending beneath our life's mysterious weight of pain and fear, yet still in happiness, not yielding to the happiest upon earth. So even though these children may have, you know, all the the pains and fears of life, they still have a happiness as great as anyone on earth. Simplicity in habit, truth in speech, be these the daily strengtheners of their minds. May books and nature be their early joy and knowledge rightly honored with that name, knowledge not purchased with the loss of power. So notice the way that he goes from this very specific memory, this boy of Winander, and his experience with nature, and then 
he goes back. I remember standing there looking at his grave, and that made me think of the area, and that made me think of the children there. And now I'm thinking this is it gets much broader. This is how children should be. This is the way that lives of children are. It becomes kind of broader, more general, more abstract in a way uh, uh, from just that one single boy. Uh, this is the way that they should be, the, the way that he wants children. And again, with Wordsworth, there's that uh, idealization of childhood as this golden time. Uh, and again, we see here the kind of the, the psychology of Wordsworth's poetry, that uh, you know the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings, the emotion recollected in tranquility. Uh, he's, he's remembering these little moments of experience and recreating their emotional power and gaining a new insight from them by putting them into poetry. Um, and I think that's what Wordsworth is doing and certainly trying to do in almost all of his poems. Well, we could talk, uh, uh, there's, there's a lot more great Wordsworth poems to talk about, but uh, we will leave it there for now. Uh, for next time, I would like you to read uh, two things by uh, Coleridge. Uh, the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which is fairly long, and Kubla Khan, which is fairly short. Uh, the Ancient Mariner is a, uh, a narrative poem. It's telling a, a story. It's actually kind of a story within a story because it starts off a guy, uh, the, the Mariner stops a man who's going to a wedding and says, I've got to tell you this story about what happened to me. And so he's the narrator. And actually, I want you to think about that, uh, the different voices in the poem. There's the voice of the mariner. Uh, there's the voice of the poet, who is the, the, the speaker of the uh, larger narrator of the poem. And you'll also see that there's a, a voice of the, the, the side notes. These were something that uh, Coleridge added in. Uh, and think about sometimes how, how those interact with the poem. How do they clarify or modify or maybe sometimes even argue with what's going on in the poem? And just think about the different voices in the in the poem. Uh, you'll see that Coleridge is a very different kind of poet than uh, than Wordsworth. Uh, for one thing, this is not a personal experience he's talking about. This is a a, a tale, uh, a fictional story. Uh, also, think about what the the message of the the poem is. If it doesn't have a message, uh, and if so, what is that? And then. Also read the shorter poem, Kublai Khan, uh, and be sure that you read the introduction to it. it is, there's a very famous story of, of how uh, Coleridge came to be inspired to write this poem. And think about, think about how the poem is different when you know that. If you just read the poem and didn't know the story behind it, how might that change how you respond to it? So we'll talk about that and uh, other things next time. Uh, thank you for your attention. And I will talk to you then.